1964 New York World's Fair, celebrating man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. I'm Paul Zoll, and these podcasts will be regular updates from the worlds of literature, popular culture, and the old religion. That's Bob Dylan's phrase in relation to some of life's everyday problems, such as anger, loss, and bewilderment. Most of my podcasts will begin with a text, sometimes from a novel, I Love Possessed, sometimes from a movie, The Bride of Frankenstein, sometimes from a song, Telstar, for example, sometimes from the Bible, Perfect Love Casts Out Fear, sometimes from a TV show, Tonight's story will be a thriller. Each week, I hope to offer you something different, something entertaining, something even, well, blood-transfusing. This podcast is an attempt to bring together a, a fundamental feature of the ministry of Jesus with the life of an independent record producer in England in the uh, in the uh, late 50s and mid 60s named Robert George Meek, known as Joe Meek. And the uh, reason that these two uh, seemingly completely uh, uh, opposite or separated by thousands of years people come together is because the uh, two men, Jesus of Nazareth and Joe Meek were both accused of exactly the same thing. When Jesus, who had grown up in the small town of Nazareth uh, in Galilee, where uh, there was a lot of intermarrying and where the particular religious form of Judaism was considered slightly non-kosher because of the fact that there had been quite a bit of racial intermixture in that part of the world, when Jesus, therefore, who came from Nazareth in Galilee, began to preach his message, word got out in Judea and south of Galilee and Nazareth, and people who uh, we today might use the word uh, began to sniff at his message, his particular approach, his rather radical approach to uh, human relationships and uh, human guilt and uh, the kind of uh, issues that he tilted at and was concerned for. Uh, he, it was often said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good, that is, anything worth listening to, come out of Nazareth, i.e. come out of a man who is from this somewhat second-rate, second-tier place? Now, uh, our son, my son Simeon, uh, who uh, currently teaches at Cambridge University in England, he, uh, some years ago in college, came up with a kind of phrase uh, which uh, seemed to touch this nerve. Simeon would talk about the Nazareth principle, and by the Nazareth principle, he was referring to the fact that very often in life, the very place in your life, my life, that is the most second tier, the most humiliated, the part of of our life that we least want to think about or talk about or that we are most ashamed of or simply is not in the mainstream of a high-thinking, high-aspiring, high-aiming person, that 
place in our life, that Nazareth, that sort of mixed uh, place of, of often some kind of humiliation or a bad period you were in, that's often where the best things come. It's often in the place of defeat, the place of weakness, the place of mixture, uh, the place where your standards and those of others have come crashing down that actually some creative kind of electrical transaction happens. And it's from there that your hope develops. People often say this. They will say, well, you know, it was that that exact moment, that crucial failure in my life, that that end of that relationship, that being fired, that terrible disappointment of something I had so hoped would pan out, it was actually in that that I, I found myself, or out of that that I found my true career, or in that accidental circumstance that at the time seemed like a negative uh, insult, to quote uh, the uh, um, Wilder play Pullman Car Hiawatha, in which one of the characters says that the whole journey, like life is one series of insults. Well, the Nazareth principle sees in the insult quite often, not always, but often the place where healing and hope and transformation and just the gestation of something something good actually happens. Now, let's think about this, uh, not in uh, traditional biblical terms, though that is the sort of core uh, experience as, as gelled in that statement, can anything come out of Nazareth that is good? Let's talk about the Nazareth principle in light of actually one uh, of the most unusual uh, characters in the history of popular rock and roll music that has ever uh, come onto the planet. This particular character is someone I've been interested in a long time. Actually, I flew to England uh, from... Uh, Pittsburgh, uh, actually it was uh, from Birmingham, not all that long ago, specifically to make a pilgrimage to the apartment and flat or house in the Islington section of North London, where uh, Joe Meek uh, actually set up his Nazareth tent and produced something very good out of nothing, or even out of less than nothing. To illustrate the Nazareth principle, uh, and it's going to be a principle which I suspect you may relate to because it's we all have Nazareths and we keep thinking that, that it's out of our Princeton acceptance or out of our Harvard business degree or out of our particular thing that we have to brag about that's going to come our great breakthrough and uh, come to find out it's usually in the opposite of that, the being kicked out the uh, point of, of absolute brick wall before a cherished dream or vision. It's often in the disappointment, as I think anyone who's, who's lived for a while, it's out of there that the new relationship burns, the phoenix, as it were, the fires of which produce or seem to be the prelude to an entirely new and often very creative turning. Now, um, Joe Meek, let me talk a little bit about him because he's very interesting. And actually, he's a very cool person. And he did provide the background music and the theme song for PZ's podcast. You'll, you hear it every time you turn on one of these podcasts because in the intro, as the background, you hear Joe Meek's 1962 recording of Telstar, a 45 single that he produced, assisted by uh, his kind of... Um, muse, uh, Jeff Goddard, who himself is an ultimate uh, picture of, of Nazareth. We'll get to Jeff Goddard, but Jeff Goddard was a kind of muse for Joe Meek, and in 1962, uh, basically recorded almost in a bathroom, but in a tiny little flat, you 
using just one little, very new experimental instrument, a small little handheld keyboard called keyboard called a claviolin, together with a backing track by a couple of musicians, Clem Catini and others, who later became known as the Tornadoes. This great piece of, uh, I would call it modernist, absurdist music, which I do regard, if you want to use sort of intellectual type language, as kind of a classic of modernist popular culture. In any event, Joe Meek produced in Nazareth a little tiny apartment, which I had the, to me, privilege of visiting uh, at 304 Holloway Road in North London in the Islington section. I'll talk about that visit shortly. He produced Telstar, the background music for these podcasts. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this uh, very unusual man, Robert George Meek, uh, who became known as Joe Meek. Uh, Joe Meek was born in 1929, and he had an early interest in electronics. Uh, in sort of, uh, he was in the. He, he used to set up a kind of little uh, tape recorder in uh, a kind of uh, almost like a treehouse, kind of a kids' uh, play secret area, in, like a shed in back. And he grew up in Newent in Gloucestershire, an English village, which you can of course visit, and it's not a big place even now. And uh, he then went into the uh, British forces, was drafted in, and became a kind of expert in electronic uh, equipment. And uh, he was a rather jumpy guy, uh, subject to fits of anger. Um, his uh, homosexuality, uh, because it was prescribed in England by law at the time, was hidden, although it came out very definitely uh, later on to any number of people who knew him and who he sort of moved in on. And uh, it was a source of uh, ambivalence, and you could talk about a kind of uh, suppression that existed there under law in England at that time that affected Joe Meek. But I don't think it's the core of Joe Meek. It's an aspect, but it's not the core. The core of Joe Meek is a man who heard something. He, as to uh, use his uh, title of a very experimental and unusual uh, recording he later made, I Hear a New World. Uh, Joe, Joe Meek heard things. He he had intense ears, and although he was oddly tone deaf when it came to his own singing, we have a lot of recordings of him singing, and he he's terrible. He's off key all the time. He's sort of like you think of Beethoven, who is deaf when he wrote those concluding quartets of such majesty and power and depth and intricacy. And here you have a man who couldn't carry a tune. And I could play uh, some recordings I have here of him singing some of his songs, especially the song Happy Valley when he he sings a song which is at such complete odds with his frustrated, Nazareth, disappointed, upset, and controverted life. When he sings Happy Valley, you just about want to jump out the window. So poignant is Joe Meek's off-key singing of Happy Valley when, in fact, uh, he was a bit of, uh, in my uh, view, an inspired genius. Now, he uh, became uh, a first, because he was very obviously gifted, he was hired by some London recording studios in days when everything was sort of white gloves and everyone wore sort of white suits like they were experimenting with mice or something. And he got fired or he had, he walked out very quickly because he had some very creative, interesting ideas about mixing the bass line, especially that <clears throat> were very unorthodox in his mixing techniques with uh, Lonnie Donegan and some of the jazz early, uh, what we would call 1950s English jazz uh, 
groups, which were very popular in that era. His mixing techniques were controversial, and he had real problems getting his records made. So he uh, hived off and formed something called Triumph Records, which was briefly uh, unsuccessful. And the poor guy had all these ideas, but he wasn't able to uh, put them out in a commercial way that would make him a living. Now, what were some of these ideas? I'm not an engineer, but if you listen to his records, you'll immediately see there's a very high degree of reverberation or echo right off the bat. Sometimes you feel like the singer is speaking from underwater. The um, the guitar and the piano is often a very treble, very, very high and uh, tinny. It turns out that he used something called compression, in which he would compress all the possible spectrum of the sounds down into a very narrow band. And the result of this compressed sound, you can feel it and hear it, is sort of a zzzz in the sound that uh, almost goes through your ears. Even these are on 45s. And he delighted in making 45s, which when they were released popularly, the needle would actually jump off the 45s. And I have the 45s to prove it, because our son David has actually been kind enough and loving enough to get me some original Joe Meek 45s. And a wonderful uh, man, uh, 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 just a lovely guy, uh, down Tom Agricola, down in Birmingham, was the first person to ever get me a, a an actual Joe Meek a 45. And it has this quality of this zzz that almost gets the needle to jump off because so concentrated and compressed is the sound, a lot of reverberation, a lot of echo. And then he does something that he was very criticized for by the artists with whom he worked. Artists, you'll soon find out about that. The artists, he... um he would uh, uh, take their uh, vocals and often speed them up. He was asked once by, uh, uh, what was his name, Odell. He was the lead singer for The Honeycombs, which had a major success. I'll talk about it with Joe Meek. And he said, Joe, will you stop speeding up my um, vocals? Uh, you make me sound like one of the chipmunks. And uh, Joe's response, which was uh, written down, Joe said, uh, listen, there's... What could possibly be wrong with speeding up anything? Doesn't everything benefit from being speeded up? Now that's my kind of guy. Doesn't everything benefit from being speeded up? If they just speed up CNN and Fox News, uh, from Keith Olbermann to... Uh, to Greta Van, whatever her name is, if they just speed it up, we'd be a whole lot better. Speed up all the words. Speed all these long, long things. Speed it up. And so Joe Meek had reverberation, compression, uh, echo, uh, the effects that made often people sound like they were underwater, and then this speeded up sound, which gives a kind of outer space Jetsons quality. There's no question that if you want sort of outer space type music, you need to go to the music of George. Uh, Joe Meek. Now, this uh, brings up a procedural question. It's still pretty hard to get his music because until just a few years ago, um, uh, his music, he only had really four to six serious hits, most of them in England. But uh, Joe Meek's music was hard to come by because uh, he, com he, he committed suicide on the 3rd of February, 1967. Uh, I'll talk about that. And so his estate, the licenses on all his work, and he had a huge he was extremely prolific. He was he was not at all a sort of a ditherer, which you often find in the in the English context. People who have a lot of great ideas, but they can't quite muster up the kind of oomph to get something done. And there's always
always a, you know, Wellington uh, uh, found that the war office uh, back in uh, London when he was fighting on the peninsula against Napoleon in Spain, there was a dithering going on that made it very hard for him to, to win the war. Now, um, this is a, a sort of a cultural characteristic, even in music. And so uh, he had, he was, he produced an enormous number of tracks and experiments, some fully formed recordings and a tremendous amount of experimental unfinished work. And when he died so tragically by his own hand in 1967, there was no real legality for his, he was very young. Let me figure this out. He was 37 years of age when he shot himself. And so there was no legal standing. And so a, a tremendous amount of his material was supposed Merged and couldn't be retrieved, and no one knew who really owned the rights to even the things that were commercial. So until about 10 years ago, it was really hard to get Joe Meek stuff. You had to basically be in England looking through old record uh, sort of boxes. But uh, fortunately, some wonderful recordings have been done. And uh, one is called uh, I Can't Believe It's True. The I think it's called The Weird, Wacky World of Joe Meek, and that's available, and that was the first one that I got. But the one you want to get is called uh, Joe Meek, The Alchemist of Pop. And this uh, recording is by Castle Music, uh, a, a Castle Music in the UK, and it was uh, published in 2002. And this is probably the best uh, uh, overall summary. It's in two CDs. There is uh, a uh, The Genius of Joe Meek, uh, which is a box set, not really easy to come by either, but look that up. I think it's called The Genius of Joe Meek, and it's a box set, and I'm looking at it as I give this uh, talk. Uh, that has absolutely everything and a lot of experimental recordings, but the actual fact of the matter that until 2008... Until 2008, the vast majority of his remaining work, which is mostly on tape and uh, is, does, does, just has hundreds and hundreds of unfinished, some very interesting and some awful attempts to bring his sound into his vision, he heard a new world. Uh, these uh, tapes were finally auctioned off in 2008, and I believe uh, whoever bought them, and I'm not sure that it's even known exactly who did buy them, these so-called tea chest tapes. They were in big English wooden tea chests, went for about 200,000 pounds, and um, that's a lot for someone that no one's ever heard of. Now, there's a huge following because Joe Meek, because he killed himself, uh, because he was a gay man at a time when uh, being gay was illegal in England, and he suffered for that, and also because he had a kind of occult, that's not the right word, he wasn't occult, he grew up in the Church of England and still had a kind of, he's, he's buried uh, in a Church of England uh, churchyard, uh, but there's a kind of, uh, he was very much in touch with spirits, he believed that he was talking to Buddy Holly, he uh, had a tremendous sort of feel for UFOs and for extra paranormal things. He was very much a kind of X-File sort of guy, and he made that clear at an early time, before this stuff was all sort of mainstream as it is now. He painted some very unusual, weird paintings, and uh, we basically, there's a huge sort of following out there of people who see Joe Meek as a kind of avatar, a kind of supernatural figure, and I'm sympathetic with that. I think he was, his weirdness, which has been really justified, there's actually 
been a major movie made of him. Uh, 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 I think it's called The Telstar Man, Joe Meek. It was released last year in England. I haven't seen it. I haven't had a chance to. I'm not sure it's all that great. I'm told by Nick Wilde, my great Joe Meek and other Mark Rutherford uh, and early rock and roll in Bedford, England colleague and friend uh, over in uh, Bedford, England, uh, that... um, that the movie is good but not great, and I think there may be some contemporary ideology in it, uh, but it was an attempt because the music is fantastic. And again, you've got to go get Joe Meek, The Alchemist of Pop. There are a number of other fairly hard to find, almost all UK CDs, but you can get them. But this is the place to go. Now, uh, let's just talk about this for just a minute. What did he actually do? Joe Meek, in a kind of Nazareth situation, he had no money, he had no one to encourage him, he was hearing a new sound that had never to that day been done in rock and roll. He saw great groups like the Beatles and the Dave Clark Five, and you name it, when we call it the British Invasion, not to mention earlier times, achieve tremendous success when he had in many ways pioneered many of the techniques that were later brought to bear in Abbey Road or in in Sgt. Pepper's and and most of all in Sgt. Pepper's. Uh, And uh, he had a lot of the things you hear in that great song, what is it, the end of the first uh, side of Sgt. Pepper's, I've suddenly 10,000 in dark. Lancashire. I heard the news today. Oh no. A lot of that, those kind of techniques, uh, those sounds, those uh, dubbings and putting on layers were things that were pub- uh, that were started by Joe Meek. We think of Phil Spector, the controversial Phil Spector over here with his wall of sound as having pioneered some of these ideas. But Joe Meek uh, really is now regarded by many, many people as one of the great independent inspirers who died before any of the credit that he should have received could come to him. And in one of my uh, in one of my books, I think it's in a short systematic theology, but no, actually, it's in Grace and Practice. I had written a whole chapter about Joe Meek, uh, about Joe Meek and Grace and what went wrong with Joe Meek, because I really spent a lot of time with Joe Meek uh, uh, in his uh, working through his life, and I went to see his house, and uh, this is a subject of real interest, uh, as you can tell, and um, I uh, that chapter was just a little too off the wall for the book. It was not quite directly related enough, and the publisher said, look, this is a little bit too much. Uh, so I cut it, but in the preface, you'll hear about Joe Meek, and I refer to him, and one of the things I say, I wish I'd been there to comfort Joe Meek, because Joe Meek was completely alone. It's not just his sexuality, although that's a factor. It was his deep sense of being uh, someone who had a kind of prophetic, inspired sound and vision and hearing. It was mainly what he heard, and no one else heard it. And as a result, he never made the mainstream. And this makes his music uh, particularly both sad and funny. Now let's get it right on the table. He had, I think, about four uh, number top five hits in Britain. One is called Johnny Remember Me by the singer John Layton, now completely forgotten, but you'll actually see John Layton in a small supporting role in the movie The Great Escape, which simply shows you that that John Layton had broken through to a small segment of people who might see that movie in his very odd sort of, it's called Death Rock, Johnny Remember Me, but it's really beautiful beautiful song. And then he had a top five hit with a very, uh, with Heinz, 
uh, called Just Like Eddie. Now, Heinz is a whole, there's a whole bibliography on Heinz, who is a, uh, an Englishman of German extraction, who, uh, who, whose parents were of German origin. And Heinz, uh, at, uh, was a sort of a, a kind of a very close friend, not a lover of Joe Meek. Heinz has expressed this very emphatically on tape, but he did a song uh, that Joe Meek uh, produced with help from Jeff Goddard, who was another weirdo, wonderful weirdo. Now, now let's get back to Heinz before I talk about Jeff Goddard. Heinz uh, actually dyed his hair uh, bright blonde yellow, the yellowest you could possibly get. Now, this makes you just love Joe Meek. Joe Meek took Heinz, who was a young, not, I think, all that talented kind of a groupie, um, but a well-meaning fellow. I guess we would say he he was committed. Uh, he took Heinz, Joe Meek did, to see Village of the Damned. Now, you'll note that on the podcast logo, the little space child, whose name in the movie is David Zellaby, and who's played by an actor named Martin Stevens, who later played in the remarkable movie The Innocent. Sense, uh, a child actor in uh, England who was extremely effective. And the little space children in the movie Village of the Damned all have this super blonde, uh, peroxided blonde hair, which is the symbol of their otherworldly birth uh, or begetting. And uh, Joe Meek told Heinz, he said, Heinz, you should dye your hair like that. And Heinz did, and it was not done in England in those days. That was different. That was really different. It's sort of what dyeing your hair blue was like about 12 years ago. Heinz did it and caused a huge sensation. And then a Joe began to use him, not great rec- uh, vocal, but wonderful recordings. And Heinz scored a massive hit called Just Like Eddie, which you've got on YouTube. It's a wonderful song with a great guitar part. Incidentally, uh, Jimmy Page, the famous uh, guitarist for Led Zeppelin, began working with Joe Meek, and many of the great Joe Meek songs have Jimmy Page guitar solos that are uncredited. But Jimmy Page was a kind of what we today would call a session man, very young, extremely versatile and gifted rock guitarist who Joe Meek picked up on and would pay him, you know, four quid or ten quid to record a guitar solo, which often is a really a, a radical, odd, weird guitar solo for the early 60s or mid-60s. This guy later became one of the great, great iconic guitar of the world. So you got Jimmy Page, you got Heinz, who you never heard of, you got John Layton, who you probably never heard of. You have this Jeff Goddard, who's a very gifted, classically trained keyboardist, who also is a little weird and believes in Ouija boards and, and was trained in the Church of England and was a choir boy, but is, and shares that because they both had grown up in Church of England parish choirs. And Jeff Goddard has this tremendous, odd gravitation towards Buddy Holly, but he's really a good musician. And so he and and, uh, and uh, 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 Joe, in 1962, put together with a bat bass line from a few other people, put together Telstar, which has got to be one of the weirdest, most wonderful songs of all time. It's used as a theme in the background for Christopher Walken, who plays, I believe, the angel Gabriel, a fallen angel at least, in Prophecy 3, which you've got to see. Prophecy 3 with Christopher Walken as the fallen angel. And Telstar is used with absolute riveting power and appropriateness as background for the fallen angel driving a kind of souped-up, thinned-out Cadillac or thinned-out car. I think it's a Cadillac across the uh, California-Nevada desert. 
Now, uh, later, there were a number of hits he had, but Telstar, number one, and it was the first uh, UK hit that reached number one in the United States. It was just before the Beatles hit, but it was the first English written and produced hit that was a number one song in the US, Telstar, although the version that many of us have heard was used, was by The Ventures, which was a, a copy that also did well. But, but Joe Meek's version did make it here. He made a lot of money, but lost it all because he had no money, so he reinvested it, and he kept having no hits. Johnny Remember Me, Just Like Eddie, and finally, uh, his last big hit, uh, and it's sad because he wrote a number of songs that are potentially very good, uh, Have I the Right by the Honeycombs. This was the group uh, Dave O'Dell and his uh, wonderful sister, I think her name was Honey Rogers, uh, who... Um, who uh, or honey something or other, and she was the first high-profile female drummer in an English rock and roll band, and caused a tremendous amount of interest at the time. Honey, uh, I think it's Langtree. That's her name, Honey Langtree, and she played in pubs with her brother or whoever the rest of the uh, mates in the group were, and she was on Shindig and Hullabaloo, and <clears throat> I think, to be honest, the Ed Sullivan Show but I'm not sure of that last one. <clears throat> and Have I the Right was recorded, one of the great songs of all time, Have I the Right, and in it you'll notice there's a bum, 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 bum uh, drum sound, which uh, was done uh, because they were recording these things in this little tiny flat or apartment at uh, 304 Holloway Road, and they, they got on the steps and just banged their booted feet uh, on the steps to create the bum, 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 and you'll hear it. It became very, it was one of the marks of the song that made it a gigantic hit. I remember uh, when I was in school, uh, uh, a friend of mine had been over on a Roman uh, archaeological excavation, uh, excavation, I think down in Eastbourne in Kent, and he came back with the single Have I the Right, and we'd just never heard anything quite like it, because the compressed sound coupled with the speeded up vocal, which is, almost sounds like a <laughs> like a cackle, but it's really ebullient and really enthusiastic, and you really can't help but, but bang your foot with it, coupled with this banging sound that sounded so great, but was really just a couple of guys, Joe and three or four of his friends, banging their booted feet, these mod, you know, these mod kind of boots they used to wear, John Lennon, and you see him all the time in the early Beatles. That's what made Have I the Right. Now, after that, because... Uh, he was sued twice, uh, falsely in my opinion, and in the opinion of most of us who are in the Joe Meek, the island of terror that is Joe Meek's great group of fans. He was falsely sued. He made no money. The money he made was lost. He spent it to what he literally had. He spent and gave many gifts away to people like Heinz. And uh, uh, he became very depressed. He got more and more involved with kind of spiritualism in the negative sense of uh, communicating with the dead. And uh, on the 3rd of February, 1967, he got very angry at his landlady, who was actually very sympathetic, Violet Shenton. She was really nice. She was actually a lovely person. This, you know, a, a, a London, we would call, um, you know, a blue-collar London a person, uh, just straight, as a, straight up, tells you what you thought, no nonsense about her, a great person. And he got so angry at her that he went up and got Heinz's shotgun that Heinz used to do bird hunting sometimes in the weekends, and he came down and shot her to death. And then he went up immediately and took his own life with the same shotgun. That was on the 3rd of February, 1967, and it was on all the front pages of the newspapers. Why he did it? You know, there's always this, what caused it? What was the thing that tripped it? Uh, no one knows. There are many guesses. There are many theories. Uh, it's been written about extensively and commented on. It's sort of internet heaven. 
you know, what actually happened to, to, to set our wonderful Joe over the edge to kill his landlady and then himself. Uh, no one knows, but nonetheless, it ended, his life ended absolutely tragically. And this is Nazareth. You, you have four great hits, actually about six, if you add a couple I haven't mentioned, which were hits in England only. And I think a couple, he was very big in, uh, in Sweden, <laughs> believe it or not. And, um, uh, this very unusual repertoire, and you can get it, you'll hear it. The fact that uh, high groups would not, uh, groups that were successful wouldn't record with him. He was always looking for groups, he, big groups like the Beatles and others, just although there's a story that the Beatles wanted to record to him. I think it's apocryphal, but in any event, uh, he had tended, most of the groups that he ended up recording with were just people at the very, they were sort of just starting out, and they were like 17, and often they had no real gifts. They were terrible. And so you have even on his great let's let's list a couple of his groups and some of their songs. You have uh, singers like the fabulous Flea Wreckers. They were Dutch, but they actually they 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 recorded some wonderful songs like Chickaroo. You have Peter Jay. Who's ever heard of Peter Jay? But he recorded a song, a highly romanticized song with with weird violins called Paradise Garden that you have to almost see to believe. Um, he uh, the outlaw became a kind of instrumental Western group uh, that he recorded, but really weird uh, and sometimes very effective little singles with a kind of unusual guitar. He did, the Moon Trekkers did a song called Night of the Vampire because Joe Meek had a kind of interest in horror films. Uh-huh. And Night of the Vampire is a wonderful song. You can get it by the Moon Trekkers. Screaming Lord Such. Now some of you will remember Screaming Lord Such because I think he ran for Parliament and almost won, and he was sort of a media figure. But Till the Following Night by Screaming Lord Such, it's the kind of song with a, you know, the opening of a coffin and kind of monster mashes, but it's actually very, it's very effective of that kind of song. It's the kind of song a very talented teenagers might have made in their bedroom when everybody else has gone to sleep. Uh, a brilliant song by Mike Berry and the Admirals called It's Just a Matter of Time. Then... Telstar makes it big. A wonderful song. Uh, then the Tornadoes, who had done Telstar, they got the performance credit, but it was written, produced, and actually basically performed uh, by Jeff Goddard under the absolutely uh, monitoring inspiration of Joe Meek. And then uh, you'll find uh, a couple of his, he, he recorded some of female stars. Glenda Collins, who was moderately successful in England at that time, um, performed some wonderful songs recorded. And her song, Something I've Got to Tell You, is just uh, very uh, powerful about a woman who's uh, telling her boyfriend that she's been unfaithful. And the last big song that uh, that Joe Meek ever recorded is called uh, "It's Hard to Believe It" by Glenda Collins. It you can get it again on this on any number. You can probably YouTube it, but if you can't, you can get it on this recording. It's the last single he released, and it's very powerful. It's a sort of a social message single about the problems we have in this earth, and there's something very. Um, sad about it. There's something very felt about it that, look, we got enough problems now rather than go to the moon. And suddenly in the middle of the song, which he, he wrote, you suddenly have a reference to moon men and he speeds it up and he actually believed that there were people on the moon. Joe Meek did. He said the people on the moon would be ridiculous, uh, made, they would, they would rebuff our visit because they would say, look, you got enough problems down there. Why are you coming to us? So uh, in addition to being sort of a social message thing, it's got that Joe Meek extraterrestrial there are people living on 
the moon really side. So, but you got to listen to it. It's hard to believe. Uh, one of my favorites is Jeff Goddard. Jeff Goddard sang a song that Joe Meek produced called Sky Men which is one of the one of the really outstanding uh, flying saucer songs of all time. It's not quite as good as Hot Chocolate, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, it's not quite as good as, uh, I forget the name of that radical English uh, labor socialist communist um, who did a wonderful song about... Uh, about now, I believe about the UFOs, Robert something or other. That's a really good song, and you can't beat Hot Chocolates, um, uh, no doubt about it. But you definitely uh, want to listen to um, uh, Sky Men by Jeff Goddard. Now uh, there are many uh, more. Uh, you must listen to the follow-up hit of the Honeycombs that wasn't a success, but it should have been called "I Can't Stop." the The version, the the one that was released, that's on this one, is the speeded up one with an amazing guitar solo. It's an insane song, but it's one of these songs that you'll never forget, and it's really very, very good. Um, there are many more. There are many more. Um, Color Slide by the Honeycombs is one of their greatest. And um, his, uh, his second to last single, which was a success, and had he had the money to press more, this would have been possibly a number five hit, is called Please Stay by the Crying Shames. And if you listen to It's Hard to Believe It by Glenda Collins and Please Stay by the Crying Shames. Not to be confused with the Crying Shames, but the Crying Shames. Please Stay. You have the pathos of the last six months of Joe Meek's life, which was a descent into what had already basically been taking place, uh, which is uh, Nazareth. Now, I'm going to close uh, by telling you about my visit to Nazareth, uh, 304 Holloway Road, and then saying something about the Nazareth. I'm going to circle back to talk about human Nazareths that we all have. And I believe, at least, no, maybe I'm not, I'm presuming that I have. I have them. I'm presuming when I say that we all have them. I have them. I went over there alone uh, and uh, later on, very soon after, met uh, Mary, uh, who came over a little bit after because of something that she was doing. And we also uh, met our son John there who met us. But I went alone, flew alone and went alone and spent a day alone at 304 uh, Holloway Road. You have to get off on the Holloway Road uh, tube stop. And when you get off, it's a very busy place. How could they ever record? And Joe Meek talks about this even back in the 60s because it's a major truck route. It's a major artery, sort of an inner belt line, truck route, and these massive, what the English used to call a semi-articulated lorries, or articulated lorries, are just these major big trucks are just thundering through, and they were then, and it was very hard to get silence up there, but somehow he did it, and did his best to it, and he had these techniques for uh, getting the sound out, but there it was, he was recording on, on Holloway Road, and you walk over about four blocks, and you immediately notice that it's become an immigrant neighborhood. That is to say, the majority of the people that you see on the streets and actually live on Holloway Road in this part of Islington are now um, Asians, particularly Pakistanis. It is a very strong Pakistani and Indian community there. And it is uh, uh, people who look like Joe Meek are just no longer there. They're somewhere else. So it's become an immigrant community. So all of us, you immediately realize it's, it's radically changed. Uh, where uh, there was a, I believe, a leather shop, uh, not a bad, a mainstream leather shop, uh, 
which Violet Shenton and her husband ran, uh, there is now a bicycle shop. And the people in the bicycle shop are, you know, they oh, well, mate, what do you think, might? You know, it's English people always say might when they're trying to tell you that they're English as opposed to you being an American. It's sort of a cultural marker that uh, young English men will always say to make sure you know that you're really on their turf. At least that's my impression. And so you got a lot of, well, this is the right place, might. Yep, might. What can I do for you, might? Well, I confirmed that it was the right place. And if you look up, when I was there a few years ago, the building was ready to be sold. I hope it hasn't been, and I can't confirm it. I don't think it has because the Joe Meek community would have reacted with violent and instantaneous uh, massive uh, demonstrations on Holloway Road. But in any event, there is a sign. There is a black plaque, a, a, a plaque, silvery black plaque uh, above the second story of the bicycle shop, right below the windows of the studio where Joe Meek recorded these remarkable, eccentric, wild, excellent songs. And it says, uh, here lived and died the Telstar Man. Joe Meek is called often in the literature, the Telstar Man. Here lived and died the Telstar Man. So you go in on the floor, uh, a little adjoining door, the private door, which he would have gone in, and you see the same narrow staircase that all his groups used to complain about. They would arrive at 9 o'clock in the morning and be dragging all their equipment, all their guitars and uh, uh, drum kits and uh, organs up the this very narrow, very long, uh, uh, direct shot, but very long wooden staircase, and it hasn't changed at all. And you go up there, and you find out that the uh, flat where Joe Meek lived, which was actually, I think it was uh, uh, two floors. It was uh, the f- oh, no, there was a business area, then there was a recording studio on the second floor, what we would call, I think, the third floor was the recording studio. The first was kind of a reception and living area. Then there was the recording studio on the second, I believe, and on the third floor was Joe's bedroom and the living quarters and guest quarters of the house. That's where Heinz would have stayed a lot of the time. And uh, that's where he took his own life. And um, it's uh, not you can't get in it because it's privately owned. It's owned by the tenants who are Asian at least the tenants of the second floor, what the English call the first floor, where I was. I looked in, I knocked on the door and talked to the people, and they let me look in a little bit. But, you know, I'm sure they have... Well, actually, they probably don't have a lot of visitors. (laughs) I'd be very surprised if they have a lot of Joe Meek aficionados. But they had me, and they were not all that nice, but that's all right. I looked in and sort of saw over the shoulders and stepped inside for a minute, crossed myself, went down on my knees, said a prayer from the prayer book for the repose of the faithful departed and God's mercy on his soul and gave great thanks for the gift of Joe Meek to this world, got up from my prayers. They respected that and then uh, uh, asked them uh, if they had any words. They Actually, only one of them spoke English, to be honest, and I walked out and I, I took photographs from the outside. Now, my point is... Um, and then there's another staircase you can see going up in an enclosed staircase, the same thing. I mean, nothing's really changed. And by the way, if you want to see it exactly as it looked, more or less, uh, there is a 1991, 1991, it's called an arena documentary. It's on tape called The Very Strange Story of the Legendary Joe Meek. And I believe this was uh, on the BBC. Uh, it's a wonderful documentary and a true documentary, but it was before the a lot of the music came out, which it's now much of it is out. The What I used to call the Joe meek music blockage is done well this is a pretty long talk isn't it i talked about his music i talked about his life 
I talked about the people in his life. I talked about the, the success he had, which was fleeting and modest. And uh, you can compare it to Mickey Most, who was another very successful producer at that time, who was extremely successful. But knew Joe Meek and realized, as you hear in the interviews with Mickey Most, that Joe Meek was an eccentric, troubled man. He was a very troubled man. He had great bouts of temper. He oscillated between sort of, uh, sort of um, praying on you almost and making a pass at you. He made a famous pass at some famous singer, but you can read all about that. And uh, Or uh, a deep depression and rejection. He had a tremendous sense of rejection. He was very close to his mom, wrote her constantly, and she very close to him. And, and uh, uh, he was very close to his uh, two brothers and his sister, and they loved him. He's very lovable. The interview, there are some interviews with him. There are even some video interviews, which you can get. I think you can download them on YouTube, and they're very touching when he talks about his, with his odd and rather high, West, almost West Country voice, talks about his studio and his recording methods, methods and he takes you through his apartment, and it's, and it's a mess. I mean, it's a complete zoo, but he knew where everything was. You say to yourself, how could he possibly have recorded Jimmy Page and Glenda Collins and the Honeycombs and Lord Such and the Screaming Savages, let alone his the instrumentals? How could he have done it? Well, it's a miracle. It, 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 when you look at it, you say it could not have been done. Well, such is Joe Meek. Such was my uh, pilgrimage to the Joe Meek uh, actual place on Holloway Road. I recommend you do that. When you love, when you're interested in somebody, go all the way with it. Don't, you know, go and uh, go to the grave where the person is buried. Go to the places where they were, especially if they're like the way they were when the great work was done. And you'll really be... Um, You'll be inspired. It's not the end of life. And, of course, Joe Meek's work is, is alive here uh, on, uh, in Winter Garden, Florida, as it is in uh, Newent, um, Gloucestershire, or Holloway Road, London, or wherever you want to say. Um, but uh, uh, it is uh, uh, really a worthwhile kind of embedding experience to go and uh, to the actual place. Well, I'm going to close and just say, look, this is amazing. The Nazareth Principle. This uh, great work, it's just, it's, Joe Meek is just one example, but they're actually countless examples. The great breakthroughs of many, many creative artists, creative musicians, creative dancers, creative disco DJs, creative film directors and screenwriters and actors and actresses and musicians and rock stars and theologians and writers and essayists and uh, monks. The almost inevitably a kind of breakthrough took place if there was a breakthrough in connection with a with a rough time they will people will all, will very often tell you well you know when it happened that particular reversal i i i, I just wished with all my heart it was the worst thing i just i just couldn't stand that time in my life but now looking back on it that's when I really learned about life, or that's when I learned about love, or the person that I met through that disaster proved to be the person who has truly loved me and whom I truly love, or that when I, my child finally had that tremendous disappointment, or that accident, sad to say, um, I saw my child overnight find that there were resources that he'd never thought he had or could find, or... Um, 
it happens in careers. It happens most characteristically in relationships. It happens in self-expression and career uh, and, and creative things. So um, this is really uh, what I wanted to bring home to you is uh, the Nazareth principle, a first coined by Simeon Zal. Uh, but it was an expression, really, of course, coming out of the New Testament, where um, Jesus's opponents uh, sort of brush off his contribution and his message and his appeal, and they say, "Are you kidding?" Can anything come out of South Alabama? Do you really think any, you know, Janice Joplin, can, can she come out of uh, Port whatever it is uh, down in uh, Texas, Texas, the Gulf Coast there? Are you really uh, thinking that uh, Beaumont, you know, are you telling me honestly that uh, that this great achievement, this book could have come out from that particular source? Well, yes, I am. I am telling you that. And I'm also blessing your Nazareths. I'm saying to you that if Joe Meek can show the way, such an odd, eccentric, and really lovable, and actually inspired artist, if he can show you the way, and I would give uh, this witness, can I get a witness? You got one talking to you. And uh, if you're dealing with some uh, situation, that uh, some relationship, some real blockage here, some disturbance in the force that is just getting you down and from which you can only avert your life and yourself and run fleeing in the opposite direction. Stop in the name of love before you break my heart, which is to say, uh, I, I don't expect you to, to, to embrace it. Uh, I certainly, no one does, but you may be surprised that the very thing the Nazareth of your life that you would rather not talk about or be in contact with in any way, shape, or form is actually was the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of something better beginning. Isn't that a song by the Kinks? Something better beginning. That's the Nazareth principle in connection with the master of independent, unknown, and if you know it, marvelous. British rock and roll, Robert George Meek. Thank you very much for listening, and God bless.